Yeah, no, but if you don't mind telling me the story, that would that be just. Terrific. Where do you want me to start? You want well, me to start at being dead? Start with actually, first I want you to start with just saying your name and what you do. What should I say? I do. Oh, well, if you don't want to say this, that's fine. yeah. But there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, even oh, with okay. this, okay. I'm a writer. I'm a producer. I'm a musician. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Coming Back, featuring. Pam Reynolds. First, Pam, if you would just tell me a little bit what your life was like before. Uh, at 25 years old, I was a singer, songwriter, did some production, and I was busily being a mother and raising children and doing the suburban thing and working. And I began to experience excruciating headaches. I went to my doctor. He didn't have an answer. He said, well, Maybe it's migraine syndrome. You stay under a lot of pressure. He medicated me for migraine syndrome. No relief, no help. Years went by, and the pain persisted and escalated. In 1991, I was in Virginia Beach, Virginia, with my husband. We were promoting a new record, and I inexplicably forgot how to talk. I've got a big mouth. I never forget how to talk. I had an excruciating headache experience some blindness, and then the coup d'etat could not hear. If you're a musician and you can't hear, you might have a problem. We drove back into Atlanta immediately, picked up the children at my mother's home, and my mother looked me right in the eyes and said, something is wrong, baby, it's in your brain. I went to the neuro lab and had the CAT scan done. They wouldn't give me any information. They asked me to please go back to my doctor's office. I found my doctor. He told me I had an aneurysm. I said, okay, so what do I have to take for that? And he said, no, sweetheart. And he sort of teared up. Obviously, it's bad. It was very large. It was in a part of the brain that was inoperable dead center in the brain stem, and that's where no one goes. No one goes there. That's your primitives. That's how you breathe, you swallow. It's all the things that keep us alive and make us what we are in terms of living beings. It was a bomb in my brain that had already begun to explode. I went to the neurologist, and he said that the surgical procedure he would be willing to risk it on the slight chance that I might somehow survive, but he could not ensure in what condition my survival would be, what it'd be like. He told me, we're going to put you to sleep. We are going to have to stop your heart, but I promise we'll get you back. Brain was stopped. Mm-hmm. It was it had no blood. Mm-hmm. He said that um, my job was to go see my attorney immediately, set my affairs in order that this bomb could go any time and was already leaking. And he gave me the last thing, the scrub kit, and told me how to use it in the shower the next morning to prepare for surgery and come on in early in the morning. We'd get her done. Okay. I remember going in. I had a headache that morning. It was excruciating. That piercing light was just terrible. I remember Dr. Spetzler's fellow, Carl Green, said, sweetheart, we're going to bring your family in. 
So in comes my entire family, and they came in. They didn't look so good. So I kept thinking, knock me out, knock me out now. <laughs> and thankfully, shortly they did. I was lying there on the gurney, minding my own business, seriously unconscious. Dr. Spetzler says I was in a deep coma when the top of my head began to tingle. And I started to hear a noise. It was guttural. It was very deep. It was natural D. And it threw off harmonics, scale harmonics, which is quite peculiar. The D replicated itself up and down the scale as if several voices were producing this sound at the same time. And as the sound continued, I don't know how to explain this other than to go ahead and say I popped out of the top of my head. And I could feel uh, like a suction cup at the top of my head, popping. It was sort of like I was sitting on Dr. Spetzler's shoulder. I was looking down at the body, and I knew it was my body. There was a case that not, it all kind of freaked me out because it looked like my father's toolbox, his socket wrench case, and there were these little bits in there, so it looked like he was doing home improvement and not brain surgery. At that point, I felt a presence and began to look around for the presence, and that's when I saw the little tiny bright pinpoint of light, and I thought there's a hole in the ceiling, a little hole in the ceiling. I kept looking at it, and it started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. By this time, I was pretty much convinced I was having some kind of hallucination, so you just go with that. I did, and it started to pull me. Now, there was a physical sensation to that pulling, like going over a hill real fast, and right above your belly button and your tummy. It's, it's a fun feeling, or a roller coaster. So I had that feeling as it pulled me from that place. And I heard a voice I had not heard in many years. It was my grandmother, and she was calling me. Immediately, I was a little bit sentimental. Grandma. The desire to go to her took over. And somehow or another, all I had to do was want to go to her, and I did. I went to her. And with her was my uncle, my musical uncle, David Saxon. He passed away of a massive heart attack at 39, inexplicably in his bed. I was still quite young, and he was my mentor, my teacher. There was a youthful softening in their faces. It looked like they were wearing the light. It was radiating from them, through them. And it was the same kind of light that I had initially seen that began to pull me. And I understood then it was some kind of wonderful inner peace. And I felt it. And I think it leaked and invaded me because I've still got it. I wanted to go closer to the light. I still felt the pulling. I remember asking, is God the light? The communication was, 
No, he's not the light. The light is what happens when God... Now here's a word I've reached for all these many years. Respirates. Breathes. It's not God. But it's what happens when he... Breathes. And I thought... I am standing in the breath of God. As I looked beyond them, I began to see other lights. There was a sea of people. They also were wearing the light. It was humorous and serious all at the same time. I thought, uh-oh, I hope I deserve to be here. It's not like I'm a perfect person. And everybody laughed. There was this huge, uproarious laughter. And my grandmother, see, here's where I'm supposed to say what she said, but she didn't say. It was an odd kind of communication. Now I know that with my children, I can look at them, they understand what I'm saying. Maybe it was that. All of them were doing that. It wasn't verbal communication, it was something beyond that. It was body language or I would say pheromone, but that sounds pretty stupid because that's a scent derivative and we weren't in the body, so how do you do that? I don't know. But I do know that they weren't physically talking. It wasn't verbal communication. It was something beyond that. I ask a lot of questions that aren't pertinent to anyone but me. The communication was, Honey, you were a little child sent away to school. Little children spilled their milk. It's the manner in which you cleaned it up that gives us cause for problems. I think um, that is most probably the greatest lesson of my life. We screw up. We're supposed to. By doing it wrong, we learn how to do it right. The object is not to avoid screwing up, but to recognize when we've done it wrong and make that tiny little minute infinitesimal correction and do it better the next time. And there's this whole huge forgiveness thing that was born in me on that day. I began to look at every brother and sister and every child and everything, even the animals, as learning, growing, screwing up. And I didn't take that so personally anymore. And we're here to do that. That's what we're here for. And as long as we're good-hearted, right-minded, and have the desire to do right and do good, goodwill towards man, so to speak, as long as we have that in us, we're okay. Because there's always that opportunity to do it different next time. I used to spend all my time focused and concentrated on shining. I've got to shine. I've got to give my best foot forward. But not anymore. It's, it's easy to be perfect. It's just write a book. Put it on paper. You can create that imaginary perfect, but it's not real. Reality is we're all screw-ups, and we're supposed to be. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing.
there was absolutely no fear and no sense of, I must be in heaven. They wouldn't let me go all the way into the light, first of all. So I tried to? Oh, yeah, I wanted to. But I was stopped. I was told, if I were permitted to go all the way in there, then it would be impossible for the me that was there to be joined with the me that was back in the operating room. And there would be people who didn't like that. So, no. Now, I've heard that many people are given a choice during the near-death experience whether or not to return to the body. They didn't give me any choice. I was going. And I didn't like it. Oh, I was shown my generations. I was shown a sea of people not wearing light, looking perfectly normal. I recognized my children or their faces in adulthood. Some of my elders, and there were a lot of people I didn't recognize. But the idea was, if you give this, it outlasts you. Because these are your voices. This, this is your voice long after you're gone from the world. This is what you leave the world. It's the only true, real thing that you leave. The ones that carry on when you're gone. And there was a whole sea of people that because I lived, carried on. There was a point at which I understood, and I can't really say how I understood, that I would be going back. The first communication was my grandmother expressing she would not be the one to take me back. And my uncle communicated, I'll be the one. And we went back the same way I had come in. It was the entire process in reverse. It was not rapid, it was very slow. And there I was again with him, looking down at the body. Only at this point, that thing looked like a train wreck. It looked like what it was, dead. I did not want to get in it. I didn't even want to look at it. And now my uncle is reasoning with me. He says, sweetheart, it's like diving into the swimming pool. Just dive in. And I said, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. And he said, well, sweetie, and here's another strange thing. He started reminding me of all my favorite things. My favorite thing to eat, my favorite smell, my, my favorite bird songs. And I'm looking down, and they, the body jumped. There were people around the gurney, and the body jumped. And I thought, okay, you know what? They're electrocuting that thing. I'm not getting my uncle pushed me. I'd heard the title track to the Eagles Hotel California album from where I was, but when I hit the body, the line was, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And the body jumped again. Now that time I was in it, I felt it. And I opened my eyes, Everyone was so solemn and so, and I thought, you know, I'm not dead yet. And this is not a funeral. And everything was just funny. Everything was funny. I just thought it was all a big joke of some kind. 
And your description of the operating room matched what happened? Yes. In fact, when I went back to see Dr. Spetzler a little over a year later for a checkup, I mentioned to him, I heard rock and roll in the OR. Spetzler hates rock and roll. He's a classical aficionado. I thought, okay, it's a hallucination. They're playing the title track, the Eagles album. Okay. Dr. Spetzler said, you know what? I wasn't there. The minute he left, the rest of the team, and I didn't know they played music in the operating room, were. You've said a few times that it was a hallucination. I thought it was at the time. I'm pretty sure now it wasn't. Tell me, tell me why do you think it, it isn't, wasn't now? Well, um, Dr. Sabom did the research, and Dr. Spetzler always knew that and it takes an active brain to have hallucination. Even in a deep coma, you don't hallucinate. I was hooked up to an EEG machine, which measures brain waves, both primitive and upper brain. And there was nothing, nothing, nothing. And if I had had a hallucination, it would have registered on the EEG. And let me ask you, do you now believe that there's life after death? The death of the physical body? Personally? Yeah. I always have. But that's a faith-motivated thing. I don't, however, believe that my experience unequivocally proves life after death. What I do believe, on a clinical level... And I've spoken with a lot of physicians who think now and have thought for quite some time that consciousness itself is not necessarily, while it may be recorded in the brain for us to talk about, it is not necessarily experienced in the brain, the brain alone. Yeah, brain was stopped. Mm -hmm. It was it had no blood. Mm -hmm. It's intriguing. I'm just absolutely blown away by it's my mind can go forever. What if this? What if that? Right. Right. Well, I think of it as uh, William James. He talks about to prove that not all crows are black. You don't have to see every crow. You just have to see one white crow. And I think to prove that's a lonely crow. <laughs> <laughs> Poor crow. It's great for science, but you know. <laughs> Do you feel like the white crow? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Does it feel lonely? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what was it? Three, four hundred years ago? The truth was the sun revolved around the earth and we were the center of the universe. And the poor guy, was it Galileo? Who decided, you know what? That might not be true. He got... All of his life, wasn't he excommunicated or something for thinking that way? And nowadays, how many of us would um, laugh if someone were to tell us that the Earth was the center of the universe? So I just think it's an ongoing process. We know what we know. It's comfortable for us to rest there. And I'm the world's worst. I like to know. But I've learned to give up what I don't. Okay, this is something I don't know don't understand, may never understand. And that's okay. I believe, Kate. 
That's it for Love and Radio. I'm sorry to have to add that since this interview was originally recorded in 2009, Pam Reynolds died at the age of 53. This episode was edited from an interview by Barbara Bradley Haggerty, who originally conducted it as a part of the series The Science of Spirituality for NPR's All Things Considered. Special thanks to Laura Correll for sending us the tape. The music for Pam's out-of-body experiences were composed by George Langford. What a cutie. Love and Radio is produced by Stephen Jackson and Julia DeWitt. We are a production of Radiotopia, the best podcast network on planet Earth, and only in existence because of the generosity of our listeners. Thank you. Radiotopia's executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back in just a couple of weeks, so stay tuned to this podcast channel. <laughs>